This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today are Doug Bostick, who is CEO of the South Carolina Battleground Preservation Trust, and Catherine Noyes, who is Liberty Trail Program Director for the American Battlefield Trust. We're going to be talking about the Liberty Trail and the two organizations that are concerned with Revolutionary War battle sites in South Carolina. So, Doug, I'd like to first start off with the, the national organization. Many years, for many years, there was the Civil War uh, Battleground Trust. Then it decided to expand its mission. Yes, sir. The South Carolina Battleground Trust um, started 30 years ago as an outgrowth of a Civil War roundtable. So, originally, we were Civil War-centric, um, as was probably a lot of the attention within the state. Um, when Catherine and I met, uh, Catherine represents the American Battlefield Trust. They were formerly the Civil War Trust, and so, like us, had their origins in the Civil War. Um, but we've been preserving uh, a variety of different battlefields related to many wars for some years. And it was, gosh, Catherine, six, seven years ago, six years ago? that we met at a conference that the American Battlefield Trust had in Charleston, and they had decided to uh, rebrand and to get into the preservation of Revolutionary War battlefields. So in having a conversation with then the president of the American Battlefield Trust, he said, Doug, we've studied this for over a year, and we've come to the conclusion that Arguably, the American Revolution was won in South Carolina. Now, I thought that was a great accomplishment, being that Jim is a, a resident of the state of Maryland. And I laughingly said, Jim, if you'd only called me, I'd have saved you a whole year's worth of study and told you that. <laughs> so it seemed like a great opportunity to uh, join the two organizations together into a, a partnership to chase down the preservation of Revolutionary War battlefields in the Palmetto State. And as many people know, uh, while we have some of the biggest battlefields that are preserved, like Camden, Kings Mountain, Cowpens, 96, Musgrove's Mill, um, the vast majority of our battlefields six years ago were unpreserved. And so we've been on a, literally on a tear um, buying property and preserving battlefields, um, sometimes through conservation easements, but most often through acquisitions, and then look for partners to pass these off to. Um, and we're also building new parks within South Carolina. So I said to somebody at the American Battlefield Trust at this particular meeting, who should I talk to? And they directed me to Catherine and over a cup of coffee at the Mills House uh, Outdoor Garden, we hatched the idea of what became the Liberty Trail. When you were talking about your organization and its focus coming out of the Civil War Roundtable, one of the ironies, I think, of this whole situation is compared to the Revolutionary War, there weren't many Civil War battlefields in South Carolina. Well, and you're exactly right. I mean, in our uh, uh beginnings of the South Carolina Battleground Trust, we were mostly a coastal organization because that's really where the Civil War occurred until Sherman marched through Columbia on his way to North Carolina. But in the American Revolution, battles are in 42 of our 46 counties. So it's a pretty statewide event. Yes. As I've told the folks in Charleston many times, the revolution may have begun and ended in Charleston, but it was won in the backcountry. <laughs> well, you know, we Charlestonians don't like to admit to that, Walter. But, uh, but yeah, the backcountry was really the powder keg that uh, that ignited all the militia organizations and people responding and deciding where they were going to side in this. Really, what was actually a civil war? Yes, a very bloody, bloody civil war. So, Catherine, how long have you been with? 
the American Battlefield Trust? I have been with the American Battlefield Trust for about eight years. Um, and I did want to add when we were talking about the epiphany at the American Battlefield Trust and the significance of South Carolina and the American Revolution that your book, Partisans and Redcoats, ended up playing a big role in that because I had the book on my bookshelf at home. And as we started to explore Revolutionary War preservation, I pulled it off the bookshelf. I had read it years ago and I handed it to Jim Lighthizer, our former president, our retired president at the American Battlefield Trust. And he came back a few days later and he said, hey, wait a minute, this is totally different than what I think I understood about the American Revolution. I think we need to start checking out South Carolina. So um, I then had the opportunity to start leading our land preservation efforts at the American Battlefield Trust um, in the Southern campaigns and starting working with Doug. Um, I am a native of South Carolina, so it was a particularly um, special assignment for me and one that I've really enjoyed. At the organization. So, where are you from? Where are you? Right here in Columbia. Uh, Columbia native. Yes, yes. Okay. All right. Well, let let's talk about defining what the Liberty Trail is and how it works. Absolutely. Well, the Liberty Trail is intended to be a driving trail. There are currently eighty sites on the Liberty Trail. Of course, there are hundreds of battles in South Carolina, and so we decided early on we had to, just as a practical matter, limit the number of battles on the trail. We couldn't save everything, um, and as if 80 sites is not ambitious enough. But in addition to the sites that we hope to save on the Liberty Trail, the intent is to identify related sites. So they may be smaller battles, skirmishes, churches that played significant roles, extant colonial homes, all these things that make up the backstory of the war in South Carolina. And so in our research on related sites in South Carolina, beyond the 80 battles that we're focused on, we have a list more than 500 so far. So it's a pretty expansive effort. Well, churches immediately, the Waxhaws Presbyterian Church. Sure. Is that, on, is that on the trail, or is that one of your ancillary? It, well, it's a related site because it's not a battle, yeah. uh, though obviously related to the battle where the wounded were taken and nursed and so forth. Um, and so what we've tried to do is stick to battles on the trail itself, but all the related sites are everything else um, that's important so that the other aspect beyond the driving trail of the Liberty Trail is we've developed an app that is now in release for the initial first 30 sites. It'll be expanded rapidly as we move along. But on the app, the intention is that when you're visiting Waxhaws, then the app would direct you to the Andrew Jackson State Park, the Waxhaws Presbyterian Church. It would tell you that Hanging Rock is just down the road. So it would give you, it would lead you in the direction of what else is in the immediate area that while you're here in Lancaster County, you probably want to visit. And so we think the the app is really the force multiplier of the Liberty Trail. It's what's going to take this thing and just rocket it out. All right. So this is an app for the Liberty Trail. Yes, so, sir. All right. Catherine, how does one go about getting this and where do I, if I want to do the Liberty Trail, is there something, someplace I should start and follow or is it I just drop into the Waxhaws or drop into Kings Mountain? How does it work? So the Liberty Trail mobile app tour is available currently. You can download it uh, in the Apple Store or the Google Play Store uh, for your smartphone. And I think one of the really great things about the way we've organized this is the opportunity, as you said, you can drop in wherever you are. If you're on a day trip and you're going to Charlotte, but you have a few extra hours when you're on the way up there, you can go and tour at Waxhaws. You can go to Hanging Rock. You can do an afternoon or you can do a full weekend. Um, and the, the mobile app tour gives you that opportunity to start in whatever geographic location you're in. And it also gives an opportunity for people who can't come to South Carolina right now. You can still do a tour of Cowpens. You can still do a tour of Camden sitting in your living room in Utah and go through the site, walk through it virtually on that mobile app and connect with the place and then hopefully want to come to South Carolina and see it in person soon. All right. 
so you can do a virtual tour? There are opportunities when you're in the app to essentially walk through those sites stop by stop within the app. And we'll be adding, as Doug mentioned, new features over time. We're going to be adding augmented reality features that will bring structures and people back onto those landscapes using digital tools. Um, we'll also have um, additional audio features, video features. So over time, we're going to continue to add these additional uh, interpretive tools so that people who are visiting on the ground and from their homes start to experience South Carolina and the revolution. So, for example, when you get to Cowpens, you can do digitally what the Park Service has been trying to do, and that is clear out the landscape from that park, you know, trees and shrubs that were put there in the 19th century to the fact that it was clear, which makes things a whole lot clearer, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, and, and two really exciting things that are in motion right now. One is there's a project going on at the Battle of Camden called the Voices of Camden. And this is going to be an audio program that you can listen to on the Camden battlefield in which we've taken first-person accounts, both British and Patriot, um, both militia and continentals and British regulars, and um, and and then they uh, we've had actors that will play those roles by speaking the words as they were written by people that were actually at the battle. So we think the Voices of Camden is going to be a fascinating exhibit for people. The other project, and Catherine mentioned augmented reality, we've launched our first augmented reality project. Um, interestingly enough, of all the bidders and contractors that submitted bids, we selected an English company, uh, <laughs> which is a little ironic. Um, they do have a project manager who's in Virginia. And on the uh, first call we had with them after they were selected as the winning bidder, he said that he was going to negotiate with his colleagues for reparations for the war. Um, but this English company has done augmented reality projects from the London Bridge to the Acropolis. So they're well-versed in what they do. And our first augmented reality project is going to be Fort Watson. And, and what they're going to do, Walter, is take an old thing made new. When I was a kid, there used to be these huge binoculars on the battery. And if you put in a quarter, you could zoom in and see Fort Sumter up close without going to it by boat. Well, it's taking that same binocular concept, but it'll be for free. And when people look through the binoculars at the Indian mound that is still extant at Fort Watson, they'll actually see the British Palisade Fort on top of the mound. And then if you swivel to the right, you'll see Hezekiah Mayhem's tower, which is the whole reason the British had to surrender right, in the let, fight. Let, let's stop and explain that to our listeners, because they may not know about Mayhem's tower and what we're talking about. So let's start off. Where is Fort Watson? And Fort Watson is part of the um, Santee Fish and Wildlife Center, and uh, it's right on Lake Marion, which used to be the Santee River. And, and so at the time of the battle, Fort Watson was one of many supply posts extending from Charleston up to Camden. Um, also, Fort Mott was another one further up. And at Fort Watson, what the British did was repurpose a very tall Indian ceremonial mound and built a palisade fort on top of the mound. So their camp was down at ground level, as was their hospital, as was their water source, which was the Santee River, but the fort was up on top of this huge mound. All right, and so we're talking about the kind of log fort that we think of from the Western movies. It was that kind of palisade, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, a wooden fort. And so the patriots that show up to lay siege on the fort are Francis Marion with his militia and Light Horse Harry Lee which is an interesting matchup because you've got this young Virginia aristocrat and this older, much older, um, I wouldn't say backwoods in Berkeley County, but certainly a country guy in Francis Marion who had deep experience in the French and Indian War. And they're sent together to lay siege on Fort Watson. Well, neither side really had artillery. And so how do you attack a fort that's elevated and you don't have artillery to force them to surrender? And so you're not going to do a frontal charge against an entrenched position. Uh, Marion was too smart to do that. And uh, 
that was not Lee's idea. Although Lee sometimes could be rash, uh, but a charge against an, uh, an entrenched position, elevated position, right. uh, is a suicide. Well, and three rows of abatis. Uh, surrounding the fort, so it was a serious okay, now again, impediment. T- terms, abatis, I know what they are, but... Yeah, abatis can be anything from uh, logs that are cut and sharpened, pointed outward to where you would expect an infantry attack, and could be as simple as just down trees that are laid there. They're, regardless of how it's constructed, it's intended to be an impediment to an infantry frontal attack. Okay. And very effective tool. And so Hezekiah Mayhem, who was a planter from now Berkeley County in the Monk's Corner area, he came up with the concept of building a tall tower. Now, the first challenge was neither Lee nor Marion nor their troops showed up with the kind of tools to do this. So they had to send people to the outlying plantations and farms to either buy or caudal people out of axes and saws and things. And over the period of a number of days, they then constructed this tall tower, which left, and and the idea was to put Marion's riflemen and sharpshooters on the top of the tower, leaving the, the American rifles taller than now the British elevated fort, with the American rifles having a longer effective range than Brown Best muskets, The British could not fire on the tower, but the tower could fire effectively into the fort. And that's what ended up forcing the surrender of the British troops under the command of Lieutenant McKay. How how tall was the tower? Do you remember? We, we think the tower was somewhere around 40 to 45 feet tall. So we're talking about a major engineering project. Well, yeah, not only uh, a major engineering project to build it, but some of the first-person accounts say that they started building it and then rolled it into place. Now, how do you do that? So I, I surmise that was done by putting it on logs and, and moving it in that fashion. They barely had the tools to build the tower. They certainly didn't have tools to build wheels. Um, but the tower was obviously moved once they started constructing it. They, they started building it out of sight of the fort and then put it into position where they could fire on the fort and finished off the tower. So, Catherine, with augmented reality, you're going to have the palisade because the mound is still there. Yes. Then you're going to have the palisade and the tower and go through the battle? Yes. And we think it's just a really interesting way. You know, one emphasis on the Liberty Trail is helping people connect with history in all different ways. So for some people, when you walk out to a battlefield site, if you see signs and you can walk the battlefield and you can read those signs, that's your way to really understand that history. That's your way to connect to the place, to connect to the stories. But we want to come to this interpretation from all different ways. And that's why we're really excited about these digital tools, about something like something like augmented reality, where especially younger generations can come and they can see this landscape with what was there at the time of the battle and they can experience it in a whole new way and we hope get really excited about history and want to continue their travels along the Liberty Trail. Now this will be on your app, correct? So there will be both the physical implementation, as Doug mentioned, through the augmented reality binoculars and then also there'll be the ability to use your smartphone for it. Okay, because I was just thinking, gosh, a 10-year-old up in Spartanburg might love to do that for his history course, but he doesn't want to drive down to the low country to, to have to do that. Sure. But he'll be able to access it through the app. Oh, and, and Walter, I'll share the short story. Catherine's heard me tell it before, but uh, years ago when my uh, youngest of three children was in middle school and all three of my kids who are now young adults, they grew up in the Xbox world. And so uh, Taylor, my youngest, we were dabbling early on years ago with augmented reality and a fellow on our staff built a union ironclad, the USS Keokuk. And you could go into the ironclad and you could see the pulley system, how the gun would run up to where it would fire and recoil it when it fired and so forth. And I called Taylor in my office, which is at home, and I said, Taylor, let me show you what we're doing. And he watched it dutifully and then he said, Dad, you're finally doing something that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so we think the younger generations are going to be reached by that and, and older people as well. Um, certainly, I think it'll be of great interest to everybody. 
uh, and, and one of the other augmented reality projects that we're getting ready to start working on is the horn work in Charleston. Now, there's that small remnant of about six feet of the tabby wall in Charleston at Marion Square. But when you see it, and it has a simple brass sign that says, The Horn Works, Siege of Charleston, 1780. You have no appreciation for the fact that the Horn Work covered 10 acres of land, held 18 guns, was 30 feet tall from the front, was just a monster of a fortification. But you're going to be able to see all of that in augmented reality when you're at Marion Square, downtown Charleston. So the, the clutter of Marion Square right now, I was just there last week. So I, yep. it is, it's Marion Square, but there's not much open land. Right. All of that's going to disappear through this program, and you will have that tabby work there. Yes, sir. Yeah, you will. Oh. So we're very excited by this, and we think the public will respond in a big way to it. We believe it'll lead to a deeper understanding with people about these fortifications and how these battles unfolded. So we're really excited with that aspect of our work. Doug and Catherine, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Doug Bostick and Catherine Noyes about the Liberty Trail and American Revolution battle sites in South Carolina. Okay, back to the augmented reality. I'm just getting really excited about reaching out to younger people using a technology that they can gather. So we think the app is going to get people, bridge people beyond that kind of thing. Certainly augmented reality is to be able to go to Utah Springs and see the British camp and the three-story brick house that the British were holed up in, we think is going to really tell a much different story, but an accurate story of what happened at Utah Springs that you simply just cannot appreciate being on the ground as the landscape currently exists. After the war, when the New England Renaissance poets began to write about, they wrote about Francis Marion, they wrote about the Battle of Utah Springs. It was a great victory for Amer- the new American nation. So, well, and unfortunately, got lost a little bit in the shadow of Yorktown, which happened shortly thereafter. But when we started working with the American Battlefield Trust, they had a person on their staff who's now retired named Frank DeLuca. And uh, Frank was in the development office uh, with ABT. And Frank is from Baltimore. And so I told Frank the story that the um, Maryland Continentals that were at Utah Springs were so enamored with their service in that battle that when they went back to Baltimore and Maryland after the war, many of the historic streets in Baltimore were renamed for either places or people in that battle. So if you go downtown Baltimore today, there's a Marion Street, a Green Street, uh, and a Hampton Street. And if you go to a Baltimore Orioles baseball game, Now, I don't know why you would go to an Orioles game, but if you did, (laughs) then you have to go down Utah Street to get to Camden Yards. Camden Yards, again, another reference to South Carolina in the war. (laughs) And we really see Utah Springs as one of the sites that really shows us why we're doing this. Because, as you said, it's such an important battle. It It played such an important role in the American Revolution, yet... Almost no one knows about the Battle of Utah Springs today. And so that opportunity to shine a light on Utah Springs and these other sites to bring technology to the places that really get people to start understanding what happened there. Because if you drive by the battlefield site at Utah Springs today, you can't really appreciate what happened there. You can't really connect with that experience. And so we can bring these new tools to the landscape and help people start to discover this history. Um, And so I think that Utah Springs is really a great example of what we're trying to do. Preserving land, because for both of our organizations, land preservation is at the heart of what we do. And it's the beginning of the process, making sure that these places are preserved forever. But then from that, really turning it into an outdoor classroom, letting it be a place that people can learn, people can connect to the land and connect to the people. I mean, I think that's another big emphasis for us. We want to bring technology. We want to get younger generations interested. But we also want people to connect to the stories of the individuals who were there, who participated. And so that's another point of emphasis for us. All right. How is the the site of Utah Springs preserved? 
Well, we, we've been buying property in, in the Utah Springs area for years now, and the battle itself covers four and a half square miles, so we're never going to be able to save all that. And a lot of the battlefield is occupied by mobile homes where catfish fishermen come on the weekends. So it's not dealing with one or four or five property owners. It's hundreds of property owners. So we made the decision early on to buy uh, property in key phases of the battle. And so it's going to be a rolling story that will be interpreted to the public. We just recently completed an archaeology survey and confirmed the location of Green's Camp at Burdell's Plantation and Tavern the night before the battle. So now we know where that is. And so we're going to acquire that property that's in negotiation right now. We have a property set that we have access to where the morning battle unfolded at 8 a.m., um, where the where the British soldiers that were out foraging in the fields heard early gunfire and then moved toward Green's army and found out they ran smack dab into the entire Patriot army. Then we have another property that's in the footprint of where Green moved from columns into lines. And then yet another property where the artillery fire starts and the Patriot militia now are pushing the British lines back a full mile, which is an incredible story in and of itself. You know, we all remember the movie The Patriot, and for all of its Hollywoodisms, one of the things that it clearly communicated was the British did not have high regard for our militia. And so they often would fire one or two volleys and then skedaddle off of the battlefield. At Utah Springs, they fired 17 volleys and pushed the British back a full mile before then the Patriot line or the militia line runs completely out of ammunition and the Continental line then comes forward. And that degrades finally into hand-to-hand combat at the end of the battle where the British camp is. So we've worked with Santee Cooper that owns the site of the British camp We're also negotiating for a property just across the street from the Santee Cooper-owned site, which is also part of that eight-acre British camp, um, and actually has a witness tree on the property, which we're excited to save. And so we'll be interpreting the Battle of Utah Springs in phases for the public. Officially, the battle was, uh, I guess, a draw, but it was a British defeat. Well, it certainly accomplished Green's objective, and that was to push the British all the way back to the coast. So after the Battle of Utah Springs, the British never again occupied land in the upcountry, uh, or the backcountry, rather. And, and so, you know, Green had this unbelievable propensity to, as the old saying goes, lose the battle and win the war. I mean, his objective was to push the British all the way back into Charleston. And after Utah Springs, the British retreated to Monk's Corner, and then shortly thereafter pulled all the way back into Charlestown. Uh, So he was very successful in that. And, you know, while on the field itself, the battle may have technically been a draw, Green and the Patriot Army really achieved their objective, and that was to push the British out. I like the way you describe Green's battle strategy, because yes, his critics say, well, he never won a battle, but he won the war. Right. He forced the British out of, of South Carolina. And what his army and the Patriots did to Cornwallis's army before he ran with his tail between his legs up to Yorktown... That was a defeated British army that ended up to surrender. It was not the same force that Cornwallis had started off with. No, not at all. And and, and that's how so many of these battles intersect with each other. Uh, we've recently um, were able to acquire the land from Warehouser Timber, where the Battle of Parker's Ferry in Colleton County occurred. And Parker's Ferry is kind of, in my mind, the exemplar of Francis Marion's ambush attack. And Marion was able to ambush the British there and keep in, in part of the British army that he literally destroyed at Parker's Ferry were dragoons that were going to be heading to Utah Springs. After they were so soundly defeated at Parker's Ferry, while Marion moved from Parker's Ferry to Utah Springs, the British dragoons, what was left of them, limped back into Charlestown. So had that Parker's Ferry battle not happened, the British would have had much more cavalry at Utah Springs, could have had an impact on the outcome of the battle. 
the Americans, both Continentals and militia, were very leery of the Dragoons. I mean, they were a very effective fighting force. So Marion's victory at Parker's Ferry was not just another one of the 140-some-odd battles that we had in South Carolina, but, as you say, had a tremendous impact on the end result at Utah Springs. You know, Walter, to your point, a a lot of people uh, have some difficulty understanding that really the most fearsome attack was when dragoons were bearing down on you in a saber attack. Um, You know, a brown best musket had a short range who knows where that lead ball was going to end up by the time it got fired from that weapon. But to have horses charging down on you with heavy sabers uh, was about, had to be about as scary thing as could happen. And that happened time and time again. It happened at Monk's Corner, at Lanude's Ferry, certainly at Waxhaw's. Just to think of that occurrence, you're standing there as infantry and these horses are charging, bearing down on you. Tarleton used that to great effect throughout the war. And a cavalry saber is a heavy weapon. It's not this pretty little thing that people carry. You know, a military wedding now, they say they have crossed. No, this is, (laughs) it weighed about seven or eight pounds. It's a heavy weapon, sharp blade. It could cut through the neck of a horse. Yeah, absolutely. So just think what it could do to a human being. and, And did. And did. Um, one of the very people with, that works with Catherine in Washington at the American Battlefield Trust, his ancestor was at Waxhaw's, and we recovered his pension statement. And his pension statement, I don't know how he lived, because you, you thought he would have died of um, infection afterwards, but in his pension statement, he describes his wounds at Waxhaw's. He lost part of his skull, four of five fingers on his right hand, and a saber attack in his side, yet managed to live after the war. Now, I don't know how that happened, but most others did not. He probably was nursed at the Waxhaw's Presbyterian Church. Probably was. And and so one other thing, Walter, I I wanted to be sure we mentioned, uh, because it's one of the most recent things that Catherine and I have endeavored to accomplish. We've just signed a contract to buy property from the Medical University of South Carolina at Fort Johnson on Charleston Harbor. And this will be the first property at Fort Johnson that will be interpreted where the history of Fort Johnson will be interpreted to the public. Now, Fort Johnson may be arguably best known for firing the first shot of the Civil War onto Fort Sumter. But prior to that, Fort Johnson, the first fort at Fort Johnson is built in 1708 as a result of the French and Spanish attack in 1704. And then in 1775, the Council of Safety instruct William Moultrie to seize Fort Johnson from the British. It was a tabby fort built the same time that the Hornwork downtown Charleston was built, same time that Fort Dorchester was built, and Fort Littleton in Beaufort, all built by the same Swiss engineer, all in the 1750s. So Moultrie sends Colonel Isaac Mott with three 50-man companies, one of them commanded by Francis Marion. When they get to Fort Johnson, the British had already gotten word they were on the way, so the British had abandoned the fort, and so the Patriots seized the fort, and that's the first time and place in September 1775 that Moultrie's new crescent flag is ever raised. So we're really excited beyond words to be preserving Fort Johnson and interpreting these great stories to the public. All right. We need to pause a moment to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Doug Bostick and Catherine Noyes about the Liberty Trail and South Carolina Revolutionary War battle sites. Catherine, let's get back to the Liberty Trail. Um, You ended up with 80 sites. Now, given the fact that there are 100 to 150, depending upon how things get counted, battle sites from the Revolutionary War in the state. How did you narrow it down to 80? 
Well, we let Doug do the tough negotiating on that one. So Doug and his team worked with archaeologists and historians to determine which 80 sites would best represent South Carolina's story in the American Revolution. So we also um, have a really robust network of partners in this project, and they participated in that project and um, have really supported the overall effort to do this. And I think one of the things we found to be really exciting and encouraging about what we're doing here is how much interest there is, you know, within the state of South Carolina, in local communities for their Revolutionary War stories. And that makes it hard to sometimes narrow it down because every community has a story and we want to create a platform where they can tell those stories. And and we very much intend to. Um, But we've also seen a lot of interest at the national level for this story. Um, People really are connecting to the preservation efforts we're doing to South Carolina's story from the American Revolution, because I think people get excited about history they didn't know about, that there was a story here that's so significant to American history, and it's not understood to a full extent. Um, And I think that's another thing that we've really had a chance to do, and and Doug can speak to this, the work with archaeologists, the archival research that Doug's team has been doing. Uh, We're discovering new things nearly every day that really round out um, the way we can present this history. All right. Catherine, you mentioned partners. Who are are you talking about? Uh, People who make donations? Are you talking about the Colleton County Historical Society? When you say partners, what do you who are you talking yes, about? All of those. So at the national level, we work very closely with the National Park Service. So both through the individual park units at Calpins at Kings Mountain, but also there is a program called the American Battlefield Protection Program that the National Park Service runs. So we work very closely with them. We've worked closely with the South Carolina Conservation Bank to support our land preservation efforts. And then as you said, you know, it's also at local levels. We've worked very closely with many partners in the Camden and Kershaw County communities to preserve sites in their towns and cities. Uh, We've worked with many very generous donors uh, and supporters who make our work possible. We really see this as the perfect public-private partnership, that we have support at the federal level, at the state level, at counties, but then also with individuals who are supporting our efforts to preserve these sites to make sure that the landscapes stay preserved forever, um, and then help us tell the stories through the on-site digital interpretation. Yeah, I think I heard from one of those two weeks ago, Luther Wanamaker from Orangeburg, and he's very much into the Revolutionary War. He is. Luther and his family own Fort Mott, which is a real compelling site. Uh, It's a shocking site in that the Fort Mott property sits on an enormous bluff over the Congaree River. Uh, You would never expect to find that, or I certainly did not the first time I ever went there, uh, to see that site and how just tall it was. And from Calhoun County, you literally, on a good day, can see Columbia from that site. It's just amazing. And part of the story of the siege of Fort Mott was that, um, again, once Light Horse Harry Lee and Francis Marion leave Fort Watson after successfully completing that siege. They go to Fort Mott. Now they're laying siege on Fort Mott. Again, what the British did was turn Rebecca Mott's home into a fortification. They're having difficulty getting the British to surrender. And when Lord Rawdon is going to evacuate Camden after Hopkirk's Hill, that bluff is so high they could see Rawdon's camp at night the fires in his camp as Rawdon was moving from Camden to try to save Fort Mott. And so that told them they better get in a hurry and and complete the siege. Otherwise, Rawdon's going to be there with his army. And so as the story goes, there's variability about how they set the house on fire, but they successfully set the roof of the house on fire where the British were embedded in this fortified house and then forced the British to surrender. And um, and that was the end of it. So by the time Rawdon gets anywhere close, the siege is already concluded. But that's a marvelous site. And Luther Wanamaker and his family have been incredible stewards for that property and babied it and caretaked it for years. Um, and it's just a magnificent place to see. This is such an incredible story of, of the revolution being rediscovered. You mentioned the National Park Service Catherine, I believe for uh, the 250th that the National Park Service is going to select five battlefield sites 
that they're going to commemorate? Well, the, the America 250 organization, which was established by legislation in Congress, is going to um, identify cities in which these grand celebrations are to be planned in the year 2026. And um, so one of those cities is Charleston. Mm-hmm. Now, while they may have located it in Charleston, the intent by the South Carolina 250th Commission is to use that as the catapult to tell the story of South Carolina. So we're headlong into planning that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're fortunate that uh, the South Carolina Battleground Trust is a statutory partner to our state's 250th commission. Mm-hmm. And and so we're very excited about the prospects that that holds. And Walter, uh, you're exactly right. What we're doing is we're rediscovering the American Revolution. It got lost in the wake of the Civil War. So many years have passed, we've forgotten about it. In some places, we've forgotten where the battles actually occurred, which is why we always use archaeology to be sure we're buying the right land. That's no small issue. But the public is just reconnecting to this story. As an example, everybody knows generally the name Lafayette, but when Lafayette first came to America, he was brought here by his mentor, Baron de Cab. And when they landed in America, they landed in Georgetown, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. That story is almost completely forgotten and needs to be told. And and then, of course, sadly, we lose DeKalb, who's mortally wounded at the Battle of Camden. So Lafayette's mentor is gone. And Lafayette, during his visit well after the war, comes to Camden to honor his mentor uh, by visiting his gravesite. And so... All of these stories that have been lost are now being found. And another example is the Battle of Port Royal Island. Happens in 1779, but the Patriots are led by William Moultrie, who's leading all militia. It's a rare battle for a number of reasons. You have two signers of the Declaration of Independence that are in the fight as combatants. Not just watching it, they're commanding artillery, Edward Rutledge and Thomas Hayward Jr. And then you have a real rare thing happening there at Port Royal. You have a, a company that's all Jewish militia. It's a Jewish militia company out of Charleston. Militias typically mustered in where they lived. And uh, these merchants, these Jewish merchants, all had shops on King Street in Charleston a mercantile pattern that it persisted through the 20th century. And they all fought together as a unit in Port Royal, Savannah, and the siege of Charleston. We've studied, and Catherine mentioned, archival research. So we've been trying to do a deep dive on this Jewish militia. Who were these men? Where'd they come from? What'd they do? How'd they do it? And they were commanded by a fellow named Richard Lushington. So we assumed he was Jewish as well. Turns out he was Quaker. He was a Quaker that came from Pennsylvania, but he did a number of un-Quaker-like things. Um, Number one, he commanded a military unit, not Quaker-like, and we've uh, discovered in Charleston he owned and operated a distillery down on Hazel Street in Charleston. Again, I'm not sure Quaker-like, yet other Quakers in in their diaries that we've recovered describe him as being a very pious Quaker. Um, so Lushington's an interesting character as he's emerged in front of us, but he led this Jewish militia company, and those men served with um, incredible honor, uh, both at Port Royal and in the siege of Charleston. Well, Nathaniel Green himself was Quaker, was he not? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, yes, <laughs> A good Quaker. <laughs> I guess there might have been some debate on that in some Quaker meetings. But anyway, that's part of the story of the American Revolution. Uh, Catherine, what's the most interesting thing or experience you've had in your last five or six years working with the Liberty Trail? 
Well, I'd say getting to work with Doug Bostic, and as you can tell today, uh, Doug is a wonderful storyteller. And for me, I think it's just been discovering uh, history of our state that I didn't even appreciate fully growing up and getting this opportunity to work uh, directly to make the Liberty Trail a reality. We think we have a real opportunity with the 250th commemorations. We think that there'll be an increased attention to the American Revolution, increased attention for these battlefield sites and the story in the American Revolution. And we want to really make sure that we're ready and prepared to have a really interesting destination and a, and a product that people can connect to when that time comes. And as Doug mentioned, the South Carolina 250th Commission has been another great partner in this effort. So I think just getting to work with all the partners here in South Carolina and at the national level and, and see that shared enthusiasm for this project, uh, that's been really the greatest part. And the other thing I guess I'll add personally, um, when we first started, working on uh, the Liberty Trail and the preservation of battlefields, I also found a, a personal connection to the Hanging Rock Battlefield. It was the first transaction that the South Carolina Battleground Trust and the American Battlefield Trust worked on together, the preservation of a tract at Hanging Rock in Lancaster County. And um, I had looked back in some family records. I knew that I had several ancestors who had fought in the American Revolution, um, but I didn't know the details of their service. And, and through a little research, I discovered while we were in the middle of working on this preservation transaction, we're doing the diligence, we're getting appraisals done and surveys done. So we're we're doing all the paperwork and all the you know diligence on the uh, real estate side. And I start doing a little research um, in my family history and my records that I had through family uh, and discovered that I had an ancestor who fought at Hanging Rock and was wounded at Hanging Rock. He survived, but it was just this really incredible connection and something that I didn't know uh, prior to us starting that preservation transaction there. So I think that that was one of the, the most interesting experiences I've had to date. Well, you, you mentioned Revolutionary War Service. And of course, we have at our state archives uh, the pension records of the men who fought. If they were killed, we also have the widows' pensions because the state was relatively generous to those who had fought in the war. Walter, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that um, Catherine was very kind in her comments. But Catherine, I'm going to pull the curtain back here. Catherine is trained as an attorney. (laughs) And like I think almost all attorneys who wish they were historians, Catherine, through this six-year journey, has actually become a really great historian (laughs) in this process. So she's not just legally trained. She's not just preserving land. Now she's into the history side of this thing. And for all the attorneys listening out there, yes, you too can have a shot at this. Walk away from that office and delve deep into history. Uh, And please bring your checkbooks. Yeah, and bring your checkbooks. Good point. (laughs) Well... Doug, your experiences over the last 10 years have been so incredible, but could you single any one event or occurrence that stands above the rest? Like Catherine pointed out, she was able to connect to an ancestor of hers that fought at Hanging Rock. To some extent, I'm like the cobbler whose kids own no shoes. I've never done my own family history. Uh, I'm not a genealogist. I'm an historian, even though most often they go hand in hand. But I really started then deeply studying one of my ancestors, a gentleman by the name of George Flagg who was the secretary of the Sons of Liberty. Now, I had known that for quite some time, but as I started studying George Flagg, I then later found out that when Pulaski came to Charleston in 1779 to face the then uh, desired attack by uh, General Prevost on Charleston that didn't work out, that George Flagg was made a colonel by Pulaski and was an aide-de-camp to Casimir Pulaski. Um, until he was later killed in battle um, uh, in Georgia. So uh, that's been an interesting trip for me. But but I have to say, Walter, that for me, like you, having written books, having been an historian for quite some time, saving these battlefields has been the biggest treat for me because I feel like the work that I'm doing, Catherine's doing, our two organizations are doing, all of our partners and donors are doing, is saving these places for generations to come. While augmented reality is going to help those stories along, I think standing in the place where DeKalb, 
um, served so faithfully, but was unfortunately mortally wounded, or the place where Francis Marion befuddled the British in the swamps, or to stand on the ground where Lafayette landed at Georgetown, is just one of those surreal experiences you can't duplicate without saving the land. And if we don't save these battlefields, they're all going to turn into industrial parks or solar farms or something. Uh, and, and, and not to begrudge any of that, because South Carolina, we're fortunate that we have a very robust economy. But South Carolina also has a great conservation story, not just in battlefields, but in overall conservation. And the work of the Liberty Trail is going to enhance that. And I would just add, too, that time truly is of the essence when it comes to preserving these sites. That We're fortunate that many of these battlefield sites are still not developed. They are still able to be preserved. But as development and growth comes, you know, the time to preserve these sites is now. And so our ability to move quickly and to get these battlefield sites preserved forever so people can do just what Doug said. So you can walk that ground and you can really understand what happened there. Um, We are really eager and focused on making sure we make that happen now. Okay. Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign Any last word that you'd like to have for our listeners before we sign off? And Catherine, I'll start with you. Well, thank you so much for having me here today. And I just am really excited to share the story of the Liberty Trail. We think that this is a project that's going to really have great significance for the state and the nation. And I'm just pleased that the American Battlefield Trust can partner with the South Carolina Battleground Trust. And um, to let your listeners hear more about what we're doing, um, this project will continue to grow and evolve. They can learn about it online at thelibertytrail.org. It's a place you can keep up uh, with our progress, and we just look forward to continuing to share uh, our updates with you over time. Doug? Walter, let me start off by saying that I want to thank you for your devotion to telling the story of the American Revolution in South Carolina over your many years as an historian. And as Catherine pointed out, it was your book that propelled her organization to knock the door on South Carolina and say, hey, you guys, we think the war might have been won here. And we said, yes, you're exactly right. Um, so I, I really appreciate, Walter, the role you've played in telling this story. And, and in large part, I think we're just continuing the stage that you set for us, you and other historians, um, and, and picking up on that story and now starting to save this land so these stories can continue to be so well told. Well... Doug Bostic, Catherine Noyes, thank you both for what you're doing and for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It was great to have Doug Bostic back on the show and to meet Catherine Noyes. In understanding the work that they do, we understand the significance of our history as South Carolinians and the role that the people of our state played in the creation of the United States. It's all a part of our history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.